0: All right, good morning, Lifewell. How are you all this morning? Awesome, that's good. I just have a few insults for you this morning. You people are more stupid than a block of wood. For you are an excellent person, as skillful, clever, and versed in holy scripture as a cow in a walnut tree or a sow on a harp. Oh, you don't like me now. Those are actually insults that uh, the famous reformer Martin Luther leveled at some of his opponents. And uh, October 31st, we uh, are reminded every year by uh, the relentless promotional machine. That it is Halloween and it's all about ghouls and goblins and dressing up and spiderwebs and candy and all those sorts of things. But October 31st is actually the anniversary of something far more important than Halloween. It is the anniversary of the, what is typically understood to be the beginning of the Reformation. Now, that just might sound really, you know, kind of boring to you and like it really doesn't matter, but you should understand something. Until October 31st of 1517, 500 years ago, in the West, there was only the Roman Catholic Church, period. That was it. There weren't churches like this one. Or first Baptist or first Christian or non-denominational churches and you didn't just get to you know kind of choose where you went to church you were in a particular parish and you went to a particular Catholic Church and honestly folks everything was different then 500 years ago long time ago certainly but uh, the political landscape was different you really didn't have nations the way you have nations today and the church the Roman Catholic Church, that is, was at the center of everything. They were at the center of political power, and obviously, being the only church, they were the only religious power. Um, Today, you know, we live in the United States of America, and we talk about freedom of religion, and uh, we hear a whole lot about uh, people from other religious groups, but those other religious groups were simply not tolerated at this point in time. Um, In fact, Uh, The Roman Catholic Church sent armies over to the Middle East to fight against Islam because Muslims had taken over many regions that had once been Christian regions, and those are called the Crusades, and uh, most often you would go to a a school and learn about the Crusades today and hear that they were all terrible and bad and and, uh, that there was a lot of really, really uh, violent stuff that went on, and that's really true. That's going to be the case with war, period. My point today is not to talk about the Crusades, certainly not to justify the Crusades, but to help you to understand that the world was a dramatically different place 500 years ago. And the reason that the world is different in the positive sense, now the world is different in a lot of bad ways, but the world is better in certain other ways. And the reason it is better is because of this one man who was an imperfect man, certainly. That's why I started with what I thought would be some humorous insults. he, uh, he talked to about one of, his, uh, one of his fellow scholars that he disagreed with. He said, your writings and head are disordered and mixed up so that it is exceedingly difficult to remember what you write. Well, there's actually a website you can go to where you can dial up an insult from Luther, and uh, it's kind of a, a humorous thing. But what we have here is, a, is an imperfect person who knew he was very imperfect and who wanted to get right with God. And at the time, what you were taught, and many people are still taught this today and still think this way today, but what you were taught is that you really needed to work hard if you wanted to get right with God. If you wanted to get into heaven, you had to get busy, and you had to do a lot of works. In the Catholic Church to this day, there are called seven sacraments. And if you are clergy, you can participate in six, and if you are laity, that is you're not a priest, you can participate in six And those are considered to be channels of grace, but you have to participate and you have to do something uh, regarding those channels of grace. But it expanded out further than that. Uh, To this day, perhaps you have been a part of a a Catholic church or another church where people would would venerate saints or pray to saints or pray to Mary. Uh, There were pilgrimages. People went on pilgrimage not only to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, which, by the way, was one of the reasons for the Crusades to win back that Holy Land, But they also went many people went on pilgrimage to Rome and they believed that this would get them credit with God see theology that is the the belief about God in the church had come to a place where people believed that in addition to Jesus death on the cross they also needed a lot of different things they needed a lot of different works otherwise they wouldn't quite qualify to get into heaven, and they would have to go to another place. Well, we know about heaven and hell, and if you've been raised in a Catholic situation, you have probably heard of purgatory. How many of you have heard of purgatory? It's kind of this middle place, and it's not found in Scripture anywhere. It's not found in the Holy Bible anywhere, but it was a a piece of theology that developed in the Catholic Church after hundreds of years. And the reason it developed is because there was this erroneous concept that it means it is a wrong-headed concept that it requires something more than just Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to get you into heaven. You needed more in order for, uh, to qualify to get into heaven. So what they thought was that virtually nobody is going to qualify unless you're a saint, and the Catholic recognizes Catholic uh, saints. Uh, And they recognize saints differently than the scripture does. In fact, I've told you before, the scripture calls you a saint. However, they believed that saints were pretty much the only people that went straight to heaven. Everybody else had to serve some time in purgatory. Well, purgatory is basically hell, but temporarily uh, you're burning in hell. Literally, burning. And when I say temporarily, I don't mean for a day. I don't mean for a couple of weeks. I mean they believed you were going to go and burn in hell for thousands of... And thousands of years before you qualified to get into heaven you see this was one of the ways that the Catholic Church maintained power over people and in addition to everything else uh, they sunk to a, a low that is almost unbelievable today unless you look at certain TV evangelists but they started raising money by selling forgiveness And they called this forgiveness that they were selling an indulgence. And so they did this as a way of raising money. So today you can go to Rome, and you can see the beautiful uh, St. Peter's Basilica, right? This beautiful edifice that was actually designed by Michelangelo. And Michelangelo lived at the same time as the fellow that I'm going to talk about in just a moment, Martin Luther. But they needed money, and the pope who was in power at this point in time was a, not a very religious fellow. He was not a very spiritual guy at all. He was a very worldly guy who loved money, and he loved power. You see, back then, today the most powerful position in the world is the president of the United States. Back then, the most powerful position in the world was the pope because the pope had both religious and political power, secular power. There really wasn't a division between uh, church and state. The church and the state were unified back then. So there were a lot of people that wanted to be pope, and it wasn't a spiritual office, and Pope Leo was certainly not a spiritual guy. Now, I won't get into all of his abuses, but even Catholics today will tell you, yeah, he was a pretty uh, terrible pope. And they will also tell you today that there were some pretty terrible things going on in Martin Luther's era. They may not all appreciate Martin Luther because he started the Reformation, and Protestant churches split off from the Catholic church at that point in time. But nonetheless, there was a Catholic uh, counter-reformation that took place after this because they recognized that there were, in fact, problems and there were, in fact, abuses. And this was something that Martin Luther brought up. So back then, you would have been in a very different situation. Today, you're sitting here and you're listening to me as I teach. Back then, that's not what you would have done when you went to church. In fact, did you know there were no pews in the church? There were no seats in the church. Everybody stood. How would you like that? You came to church and you stood and a priest offered the mass. He lifted a wafer up toward heaven and he he pronounced uh, these uh, very very special words in Latin and the church to this day the catholic church believes this that that wafer literally turns into the body of Christ. Now I know that they realize in our scientific era that if you were to break off a piece of that and go test it it would still be bread but For whatever reason, they believe that it literally becomes the body of Christ. This is a theological doctrine called transubstantiation. You don't need to remember that, but probably you can understand how unbelievably powerful it would be if you are a priest and you believed you were actually holding up the body of Jesus Christ, and then you were going to give that to people as they came up to partake of communion. Very, very big deal. Now, they didn't offer the cup to people because years and years before they discovered that people would uh, would sometimes spill the cup, and they believed that the cup, the wine, literally became the blood of Christ, and they didn't want the blood of Christ being spilled or treated uh, poorly. So only the priest partook of the cup, people partook of the bread. It was a very different time in many ways. I won't go into all of the ways, but primarily you need to understand that people were taught that they needed to do a lot of work if they wanted to get in heaven. One of the ways they could get out of it, though, was by buying these indulgences, by buying this forgiveness, and that is how the church paid for St. Peter's Basilica and a lot of other things that they did at that point in time. This was how local uh, communities, local parishes raised money, and this is how the Pope was raising money. He was selling indulgences. In fact, he sent a particular fellow around uh, who was a, uh, a monk, and uh, this was a Dominican monk. And they sent this fellow around, and he was a very smart guy. He was a good preacher, and his name was John Tetzel. And he would make these emotional pleas to people about their parents burning in purgatory about perhaps if they had lost a child at a young age, that that child was in purgatory, burning and burning, and did they not even care that their relative, their, their, their loved one, was burning in purgatory, and that if only they cared enough, they would give money to the church, and the church would offer them an indulgence so that it would lessen the amount of time that that person Had to burn in purgatory in fact if you paid enough money you could even get somebody out of purgatory so john tetzel said often in his sermons as soon as a coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs well i'm telling you what people were moved by this and they were given the church money hand over fist There was another monk by the name of Martin Luther. And he saw this as an incredible travesty and an abuse. You see, Martin Luther had been studying the Bible in its original language. Now, the church didn't make a whole lot of the Bible because the church believed that the church and church councils and the pope all had authority over the Bible, or at least equal to the Bible. But since the church was the only official interpreter of the Bible then pretty much you needed to listen to the church. And if you have ever been in the Catholic church or if you've ever spoken to a Catholic today, they're really not often encouraged to read the Bible. Simply pay attention to the priest and let the priest tell you what's going on. Let the church relate to you what is going on. It is only after the Reformation that we are encouraged to read our Bibles. And I'm going to refer to a couple of texts of Scripture today, um, as I typically do but uh, I don't want you to think that this is just a history lesson. But since October 31st is the 500th anniversary of what I'm about to describe to you, I thought it was important for you to understand it and understand uh, the reason that we are where we are today. In all honesty, you are sitting here in a church other than a Roman Catholic church today because of the man that I am telling you about, Martin Luther. Because he had the courage to take a stand against the powers of his day both the secular power, the political power. Now, I told you that the church was really pretty much in charge of everyone, but that doesn't mean that there weren't kings and emperors. There was actually a man, uh, at this point his name was Charles, and he was the Holy Roman Emperor. He had just become the Holy Roman Emperor when what I'm about to tell you took place. He was only 21 years old. He was a young man. And um, this man had the ability to threaten life, to take life. He had the power to do that. And the Pope had the authority and the power to excommunicate somebody from the church, which by everyone's standards at that point in time, it would be far worse to be excommunicated from the church and go to hell forever than to merely lose your life. You see, the church was believed to be like, um, like the ark, uh, Noah's ark, that is, that bore up uh, the eight souls from the flood and carried them Uh, to safety, carried them and held them safe from that flood of of God's wrath. Well, they believed that the church was like Noah's Ark. So if you were in the church, if you were a member of the church, if you were participating in the sacraments, then you could be saved. Now, granted, you're probably going to have to go to purgatory and burn for a few thousand years because you're not perfect unless you're just really a saint and you're doing a lot of incredible things or unless you buy an indulgence, you know, and you have enough money, then you can buy yourself out of purgatory. But you can't even get into heaven unless you are a part of, a member of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, remember, you don't have an option to go and become a member of First Christian Church, First Methodist Church, First Baptist Church, Lifewell Church, or any other church. You just are going to be a part of the Roman Catholic Church, which you are baptized into as a baby. It's not even your choice. Now, you have other choices as you go along. You participate in... Um, uh, a catechism as you're growing up, and uh, you partake of your first communion as a, as a young person and so forth, and virtually everyone did that. But nonetheless, to be excommunicated from the church was very, very significant. So Martin Luther stood up against these powers. Well, why did he have the courage to stand up against these powers? Well, as I told you as we opened, and I, I related these insults to you, which you didn't laugh at, and I thought you would— um, or I wouldn't have even read them. I thought this was a good way to start the sermon. <laughs> Little did I know. Anyway, I just wanted you to see what an imperfect fellow this was, and he knew he was imperfect. He struggled, he wrestled with his sins every day. It was a really big deal to him. As a matter of fact, when he was young, he was only, I think, twenty-one years old, same age as the, the, the Holy Roman Emperor that he was going to stand before uh some years later. Martin Luther was walking along in a forest. And there was a sudden storm that blew up, and lightning, and it gets kind of fuzzy here in the history, either he was struck by lightning, or lightning struck near him. And it terrified him so much that he fell on his face, or perhaps he was already on his face if he got struck by lightning, and he cried out, Saint Anne, I will become a monk. You say, Saint Anne? Who is Saint Anne? Well, you need to understand something about these folks. Everything was about the saints. They had patron saints and uh, Martin Luther's father was a miner a copper miner and the patron saint of copper miners was st. Anne who is st. Anne st. Anne was believed to be uh, Mary's mother that is the mother of Jesus had a mother obviously we all do we all have one and her mother's name was Anne and so uh, Everybody believed that Jesus was this, this, you know, he's the son of God. They definitely believed that. But they believed that he was a judge and they were scared of him. So that's why they started talking to Mary and praying to Mary, trying to get Mary with her feminine uh, softness and, and, and understanding and compassion to convince her son, you know, put a few good words in to Jesus for them so that they could be saved. But then, even then, they started to think of, you know, Mary might be even too strict But, you know, Mary's mother is really soft, and she's really sweet, and she's really compassionate. So you cry out to her. So do you see how this works out? You're not praying to God anymore. You're not even praying to the Son of God, who is God, obviously. You're not praying to Mary even anymore. You're praying to a saint. You're praying to Mary's mother and so forth. Well, he cried out, you know, Saint Anne, save me. I will become a monk. Well, he may have been a coarse person, and he may have been a a guy that had a lot of problems, But he kept his promises, and he became a monk. Martin Luther became a monk. In fact, he became a monk in one of the strictest orders that there were in his day, the Augustinian monks. And at one point he said, if anyone could get into heaven as the result of their monkery, it would have been me, because he did everything he was supposed to do as a monk. What would he have done as a monk? Well, he took a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience, And in addition to that, every time he felt like he sinned, he would take a whip and he would whip himself. And he did this. He went to Rome and he climbed these steps on his knees. And at every step that he climbed, these steps were believed to be the same steps that Jesus stood beneath when he stood before Pontius Pilate. Now, obviously, a lot of this was a bunch of hooey that the church cooked up in order to get more money. Right, But people went to Rome on pilgrimages, it was kind of like the Disneyland of its day, right? Just think of it as a religious Disneyland, except it had a lot of stuff that probably you and I wouldn't think was very much fun. In fact, these people were so into saints that they took the bodies of saints or the bodies they believed to have been saints and they divided them up and sent bones and teeth and pieces of hair all over the Holy Roman Empire and people actually believed that if they were in the presence of that saint's bone or tooth or piece of hair or a relic, there were thousands, perhaps millions of pieces of wood that were sold um, by the, those who were holding onto them as relics to be pieces of the true cross, the original cross. And people were told that if they were in the presence of that relic, that it would give them years off of purgatory right? It was a type of indulgence. So when people went to Rome, they weren't going to just be entertained. They were going so that they could get some credit and get into heaven sooner. So Martin Luther went to Rome. Among all of the other things that he did as a monk, he went to Rome and he climbed those steps that were believed to be the steps um, that led to Pilate, when Jesus was crucified. And it was believed that if you climbed those steps on your knees and you pronounced the Lord's Prayer on every step, that literally over a million years worth of credit would be added to you, and that would be a million years off of any time that you might spend in purgatory. So Martin Luther did all of these things, but when he went to Rome, he saw some terrible things. He saw some priests that really didn't seem to care at all about their priestly vocation. They rushed through saying the Mass, and in fact, there were parts of Rome where there was all sorts of horrific debauchery going on. There was prostitution that people participated in, and there was all sorts of uh, horrific sexual abuse that was going on. Martin Luther considered this to be a blotch and a blight on the church, and it really ate at him, and it also ate away at his uh, confidence in the Catholic Church. At the same time, as his confidence in the Catholic Church as an institution was eroding, he was still struggling to have his sins overcome. And he was a smart man. He had been sent to school by his father, who worked very hard to send him to school. And he knew how to read Latin, and he knew how to read Greek. And he received a copy of the New Testament in Greek, and he began to read it. And you know what? He read Romans. And just recently, we finished our study in Romans on Sunday morning. Uh, I'm going to return to finishing up a few last things on Wednesday when we're out of 40 days of prayer. However, uh, when Martin Luther got to Romans, and he got to the, uh, the chapter in Romans that is actually considered to be, as I've told you previously, uh, it is considered to be the, uh, the theme of Romans, Romans 1, 16, and 17, which says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who pays for an indulgence? No, for everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God or the justice of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written the righteous or the just will live by their faith. Well, Martin Luther had a problem with this word just because what he believed was that this verse meant that if you were right with God, then you would live by faith. But what he came to understand is that the justice of God was in fact the gift of God offered to us because of Christ's death on the cross. So rather than this righteousness being my righteousness that impresses God, it is Christ's righteousness that is given to me, that is imposed upon me as a result of my faith. Listen to what it says, and, um, and Jacob, you have this in the bin if you're paying attention to me, uh, Romans three twenty one through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Listen to that again. The righteousness of God is through what? Faith. It is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him, that is Christ, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate. Listen carefully, to demonstrate, to prove his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him. That is Christ to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. So you see, you could ask the question, well, why doesn't God just forgive people? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Justice. You have a penalty that you owe for your sin. It's the death penalty. And in fact, it's already hanging over your head like an anvil, like the sword of Damocles. You are going to die. And the reason that you're going to die is because of sin, because we're under this curse of death because of sin. But as uh, Scripture says in Galatians three thirteen and 14, Christ redeemed us. That is, he bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus took the justice of God on himself. So perhaps you've heard this before, but Christ is the judge. But before he judge, uh, he pronounces judgment, He also became our representative, not just our defense attorney, but the one who represented us and went through and received the punishment that you and I are due. That is grace. That is mercy. But, my friends, that is also justice because somebody has to pay. Listen, if you have a debt, somebody has to pay the debt. Somebody has got to pay that debt. And so God sent Jesus Christ to pay that debt. And so that is why this idea of the righteousness of God or the justice of God is something that is a gift for us from Jesus Christ. Well, if you have your bulletin there, we've already covered several of these, but this will kind of help you to understand what Martin Luther's life testifies to us before I continue with his story. October 31st marks the 500th year of what? The Reformation, you can put, just Reformation. And Jacob, I know you have those up there if you're able to bring that up on the, uh, on the screen. So, um, or you could say that it marks the 500th anniversary of the 95 theses, right, that's uh, the plural of thesis, being nailed on the door of the Wittenberg Church, okay? So, that's number one there. Now, what we've seen is that the catholic church was a very very powerful religious force and it doesn't matter if it's the catholic church or another church it doesn't matter if it's the christian religion or another religion number two in your bulletin there religion always strives to please god with rituals and rules so it doesn't matter if that ritual is a, is a mass that you attend and you partake of communion. It doesn't matter if that ritual is a series of prayers that you say, Our Fathers or Hail Marys. It doesn't matter if that ritual is going and and uh, participating in uh, some sort of other event or exercise uh, that, uh, that may be offered to you. This is the idea, this is the belief that you're doing something to get in God's good graces. You're doing something in order to make God happy. This is as old as human beings, right? This is why human beings in pagan religions offered human sacrifice. They thought they were pleasing the gods and their purpose was to get the gods on their side. That's religion. That is not Christianity. That is not the gospel. Number three, the gospel receives God's favor as a gift. That's completely different, friends. That's completely different than what the Catholic Church was teaching, and in many cases teaches today. That was completely different than what religion was saying. And it doesn't matter. You can get into another church, and they may, on the surface, say that they teach about grace and that they believe in this Reformed theology, but they may really be teaching their people that you need to just work really hard, read your Bible more, pray more, go to church more, give more money in order to please God. The only thing that pleases God is Jesus Christ. And so when you and I are in Christ, we are pleasing to God. When we are outside of Christ, even if we're scrambling around to try to be righteous and moral, even if you're just an incredibly disciplined person, it's not enough because the righteous live by faith. So you can do everything right and be a very moral person, but if you don't have faith, you don't have confidence in a good and loving God, then you're still a failure because all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Number four, righteousness is not what I do, but what Christ did on the cross. And that comes directly out of that passage in Romans that I read, that extended passage. Righteousness is not what I do for God. It's not my personal morality. It's not keeping the Ten Commandments. Righteousness is what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. Number five, the gospel begins and ends with faith. And that was Martin Luther's uh, clarion call to everybody, that it is all about faith. It's not about works. It's not about you striving to do something to get God to look, uh, look at you or to pay attention to you, to love you. It is about trusting God. It is about believing not just that God exists, right? It is about believing that God is a good and loving God. That's number six. Faith is confidence in God's goodness and love, which he proves in Christ. It's confident. I love that. We don't often use that term confidence as a synonym for faith, but that's what it is. We're taught today, believe in yourself, right? How many times do you hear that? How many movies do you watch where you hear that? How many times have you heard that in a class? How many times have you seen that written somewhere, believe in yourself? But that's not the kind of confidence we're talking about self-reliance, independence, believing in yourself. No, we're talking about confidence in God and His care and concern for you. You know what? That doesn't have anything to do with what you do or don't do. It's all based on what Christ did for you. It takes everything out of your hands. Now, you may say, well, then why should I behave? And, of course, this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to help us to understand in Romans 6 through 8. And I'm not going to go into that in detail because the the thunderstorm that really struck uh, the lightning that really struck Martin Luther was this idea that faith brings righteousness as a gift to us. So then once we're considered righteous, once we're counted righteous by God, even though we haven't done anything in and of ourselves what will make us behave, what will make us live right? Faith. You see, if you really trust God, you really trust that God has forgiven you, you really believe that he loves you, don't you want to live for him? Don't you want to live a life that is free of all of the sin and death that is down here on earth? Of course you do. And beyond all of that, when you believe, you also receive. That's number eight in your outline. I'll jump back up to number uh, number seven in just a moment. Believing is also receiving. Believing is also, it is receiving the very presence of God. It is receiving the Spirit of God. John 1, 12 says, To as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to be children of God, even to those who called on His name. So it's not just a matter of believing in your head. It's a matter of receiving the Spirit of God in your heart. And then number seven is a good way to understand it. We do more than believe that Jesus existed. We believe in in Jesus and call him to save us. What does Romans 10:13 say? It says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm calling on him to be my God. I'm calling on him to be my one and only superior above all other superiors and to save me. Well, these are some ideas that I wanted to relate to you. I wanted you to write those down that came as the result of Martin Luther and the Reformation. Well, Martin Luther came out against indulgences on October 31st of 1517 by nailing those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. Several years later, he was called before the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was threatened with excommunication and death. If he did not recant not only the 95 theses but many other tracts and books that he had written subsequent to that teaching people that they didn't need to put their faith in the church but in Christ listen to me say that again you don't put your faith in the church Lifewell Church the Roman Catholic Church you put your faith in Jesus Christ amen That doesn't mean you don't attend church, you don't worship with other people. It means that that is not what saves you. Putting your faith in some institution, in some edifice, or even in some community of people does not save you. It will not get you into heaven. One day you'll stand before Jesus and He will say, I never knew you. You put your faith in the Catholic Church, you put your faith in that preacher, you put your faith in that organization instead of putting your faith in me. That was what Martin Luther wanted the people to understand, and it started a revolution. These are some of the things that Martin Luther said about faith. He said, faith is a living and unshakable confidence, a belief in the grace of God, so assured that a man would die a thousand deaths for its sake. To Luther, then the church was no longer the institution defined by apostolic succession. Instead, it was the community of those who had been given faith. That's us gathered here together. Salvation came not by the sacraments as such, but by faith. Faith no longer consisted of assenting to the church's teaching, but of trusting the promises of God and the merits of Christ. Amen? Listen, we're so steeped in this, It's like a revelation that they used to believe something else. And maybe you've heard this so much that it just seems passe to you. But you need to understand that the natural thinking in human beings is to want to try to bargain with God. Is to want to try to do good things for God to get God on your side. That's not the way it works. You trust that God loves you. You trust that God sent Jesus to die for your sins. You realize that like every other human being on earth, you are in fact a sinner and you do in fact need God to give you forgiveness and to give you grace. You're not getting into heaven on your own. You're not getting into heaven because you think you're a good person. You're not getting into heaven because you do a lot of things Uh, that you should do or that you don't do a lot of other things that other people do you're going to get into heaven by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ you hear us say that all the time but you know what that started 500 years ago on October 31st of 1517 and it just continued to gain traction well several years later Martin Luther as I told you earlier stood before the Holy Roman Emperor and he was challenged to recant he was challenged to give up all of these ideas and all of these writings martin luther when threatened with excommunication and the pain of death and by the way i do mean pain these people didn't just shoot you they burned you alive they roped you to a stake they stacked wood all around your feet poured oil all over it and they lit it on fire and there you burned alive you need to understand what this man was facing what in the world was there for him to gain he simply believed the truth unless i can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the holy scriptures or with open clear and distinct grounds of reasoning then i cannot and will not recant recant, because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience You see, he had said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And he returned people to the scripture, to the living and active word of God that is contained in the 66 books of the Christian canon of scripture. And he did that believing, fully believing that he was going to die for his faith. And then something I discovered this week that I hadn't even known, I listened to a lecture by a DTS professor by the name of John Hanna, who pointed out that after this, Martin Luther was having such an impact in Germany that the church actually offered him a cardinal's hat. They said, well, if we can't scare you away... By threatening to excommunicate you and threatening to kill you how about this we'll make you a cardinal well next to the Pope that was the most powerful position you could attain in the Empire And as a matter of fact those who attained such positions had to pay for them and they were offering this to Martin Luther and Luther said no because my conscience my heart is captive to the word of god so up to this point i have focused on the importance of the theology the belief the returning us to god's word and to faith alone and to grace alone and that that is how one is saved but i want to just bring something home to those of you in this room who would say yeah yeah preacher i believe that what i wonder is do you have courage to stand because you and I are living in a time when you're gonna need to stand for your faith or you are not going to stand at all Read your bulletin it's a scripture that I put there from Isaiah a king in Isaiah's day was told Isaiah told him if you don't stand by faith you won't stand at all my friends if you just become a culture clone if you don't have courage to stand by convictions that are chained to the Word of God, convictions that come from a conscience that is captured by the Word of God, you will fall. You and I need to look at Martin Luther as the real superhero. We love all these superheroes. We're probably going to see kids running around down here tonight, and they're going to be, they got capes on, and they're going to be these superheroes, and that's great, that's fine, that's wonderful, how cute, but none of them exist. Did you hear me? Martin Luther did. And he was a flawed man who desired desperately to have a relationship with God, to be loved by God, to be forgiven, to enter heaven. And he found from the Scripture that that had already been given to him through Christ. And God used him to bring that truth back to us. And that's why you're sitting here this morning. So is your conscience captive to the Word of God? Or is your conscience captive to a community somewhere, a group of friends? Is your conscience captive to our culture, which is an antichrist culture? I advise you strongly in no uncertain terms, you need to believe the Word of God. Your conscience needs to be captive to the Word of God, and your heart needs to belong to Jesus. And that's all I have to say to you today. I'm going to invite our band to come up and play one more song. You're sitting there. And I believe you're here for a reason. I believe that the Lord wanted to say something to you. Because I was originally just going to follow along with the pattern of 40 days of prayer. And I was going to be talking on uh, the the Lord's Prayer today. In fact, you can see it on the... The sandwich board sign out there and the chalkboard that I wrote and so forth. But I believed that this was too important. I believed that this was the message for you today. I believed that this is what God wanted us to hear. And I believe you're here for a reason. So what has God said to you? I know what I said to you, but that's not what I'm asking. What has God said to you? How is he seeking to move you today from where you are to where he wants you to be? Craig and I are going to be standing up here. We would be honored to pray with you if anyone would like to pray with us. But you want, you want to hear something interesting? One of the many things that Martin Luther brought back to us is that you don't need a priest to pray for you. You don't need a preacher to pray for you. You don't need a minister to pray for you. I'm not saying we won't. I'm not saying that's not important. But you can kneel before God up here at your seat at home You can talk to God in your car. You can talk to God as you walk, as you work, and he hears you. And you are every bit as important to God as Pope Francis. And in fact, although Pope Francis may be more moral than any of us in this room, that won't get him into heaven. What gets him into heaven is the same thing that gets you and I into heaven, and that is Jesus Christ who died on that cross and rose from the dead. And if you don't have faith in that, you're not going. Don't argue with me. I didn't make the rule. I didn't lay it out there. God did. It's a free gift. The question is, are you willing to open up your arms and receive that free gift of salvation that comes as the result of putting your confidence in a God who loves you and sent his son to die for you, a son who was victorious over death and rose on the third day. That's what it's all about, my friends. Whatever else we may preach, it all comes back to that again and again and again. Salvation is by grace alone. Sola fide, they would say in Latin. It is by faith alone. I mean, excuse me, sola gratia is so, by grace alone. It is by faith alone, sola fide. so what they would say in Latin. It is according to the scripture alone, sola scriptura. It is through Christ alone, solis Christus. And it is to the glory of God alone, sola Deo Gloria. Those are the five pillars of the Reformation. And we're not a Reformed church. We're not a Calvinist church. We're not a Lutheran church. But we're a gospel church, amen? Amen. So I don't know what the Lord has said to you today, but we're up here, we're willing to pray with you. If you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never called out to him as your Lord and Savior, then I want you to do that right now at your seat. Today, I'm not going to give you the words of the prayer. You see, I know that that those of us that have been raised in a Catholic situation, that's what happens many times. The priest says a prayer or we're taught a prayer and we just follow him. But that can kind of be a mindless thing. I want you to use your mind and I want you to offer him your heart with your words right there where you sit.